Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, guys. Good to see you all today. Um, I'm really excited to begin uh, to walk through Jonah together as a church. Um, and if people know anything about Jonah, uh, you know that it has something to do with Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. And you might immediately just think of VeggieTales or, you know, something that you've seen. Uh, and these images kind of come into our minds. And uh, that's kind of where a lot of people, I think, get hung up. It's just right there. Um, some people want to ride this off as just some fictitious story. Um, but we see here a book that's actually written in this genre of history, really. Um, it says, Jonah, the son of Amittai, not... Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a na man named Jonah. It doesn't say that, you know. Um, plus, if you read uh, the book of Second Kings in the Old Testament, um, it tells you about some of the other stuff that Jonah, the son of Amittai, did. Um, the other thing, too, is that when you read further into your Bibles, you get to the Gospels and you see Jesus, who talks about Jonah. And he even referred to Jonah in this entire story, uh, these events, as a very important uh, prophetic sign for his own ministry. Uh, if you want to reference that, you can look at like uh, Matthew chapter 12, Luke chapter 11. And although this book, though, if, you, if you're looking for the first time in your Bibles, and if you haven't found Jonah yet, just uh, there's no shame in using your table of contents. It's a small book. Um, but when you, when you look, it's landed in this uh, portion of your Bible that's prophetic literature, but it reads nothing like prophetic literature because Jonah uh, prophesies like every prophet should. If you don't prophesy, you're not a good prophet. But all the other prophets, when they prophesy, you see all this poetry. You see people just constantly prophesying and saying things. Jonah has only five Hebrew words total of prophecy in this book, and it doesn't even come until chapter 3. So I, I want us to see this morning uh, that this is not a story about a big magical fish. It's actually a story about God. It's a story about the grace of God. The grace of God towards his prophet Jonah, the grace of God towards these mariners, and the grace of God towards a gruesome nation, Assyria. That's what the story is really about. Uh, this book is about Nineveh. Nineveh is the destination that God calls Jonah towards. Nineveh was the, the capital of Assyria. Um, it is uh, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. Uh, so um, during this time that Jonah prophesies, it was uh, the capital. And Nineveh and Israel, you guys, it's pretty, pretty fair to say that they just weren't friends. Jonah's Israel and Nineveh, they were not friends. Uh, there's actually an ancient limestone artifact depicting Jehu, who was the king of Israel bowing and kissing the earth at the feet of the king of Assyria. I actually have this artifact for you. Um, this piece is displayed in a British museum in London. It's called the Black Obelisk of Shalmanazar, who's the king. So there you have uh, Jehu, the king of Israel, bowing. You can go to the next picture really quick. This is a, gives you a better angle here. Yeah, so this is like an ancient artifact engraved in limestone depicting this. So if your leader... The leader of your nation is carved in limestone, kissing the ground of your enemies. That's going to sit with you a certain way, isn't it? That tells you something about their relationship with one another. This is Jonah's king, kissing the earth, right? Nineveh uh, is a very great city. It's a very wicked city. 
It, God calls it a great city, and he calls it that because he's wanting to call out that it's, it's a huge city, actually. Jonah says it took three days to walk from one side of this metropolitan complex to the other. Now, whether or not it was an actual three days isn't really the point. Uh, the point is it's, it's huge. Um, historians actually tell us that the walls of Nineveh were big enough to ride three chariots across, and we all know how big a chariot is, right? So um, three chariots across, huge, obviously. Um, this city had huge architecture. There was so much culture there. So it was a huge city. It was a great city. But it was also a really wicked city. Uh, the Ninevites were known as some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. It, it puts cruelty that you would see today even to shame. Uh, Nineveh, they would boast in their own histories about how cruel they were. They thought it was awesome that they were so cruel. Uh, and just some of the things they would do, you could read about this. It, when they would conquer another city, they often would skin alive the people that they conquered, especially the leaders, and they would spread out their skins over the city walls. They would then bury these skinned people alive up to their heads in the sand, pull their tongues out and drive a stake through their tongues so that they could languish in pain and die of thirst really slowly. They would, they would often even cut their enemy's legs off in just one arm, stick them in the sand so that while they were dying, they only had one arm left, but they could come by and shake their hands to mock them while they died, right? At, at night, they would cause them to listen to Ariana Grande on repeat over and over again, okay? <laughs> it was unspeakably brutal, okay? I'm just kidding. That was for a few people in here. You know who you are, okay? Um, I could go on, but it was really rough, uh, it was really rough to read about it. It's even rougher to talk about it. Uh, you get the picture. These aren't nice people. And God says in verse 2 to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. And we go, finally. What's Jonah going to do? What's God going to do? So I think whenever you read a story, just any story, especially in the Bible, without even thinking about it, you tend to identify with the character in the story, and sometimes who you identify with shifts, it drifts a little bit. Remember that this book was written for the Jewish people. This was written toward, for the Jewish people. This was their prophet. This is their history. And Jonah is their representative figure. He's like the only Israelite in this whole story. And when they would hear this book read, it was designed for them to resonate with Jonah. And I wonder if you will too. Um, if you want to know where we're going, I don't have a great outline for you because it's narrative. So we're kind of just going to walk through it. But in the first three verses, we see this runner. Verses 4 through 14, this rising action of the story, we see the storm. And then in verses 15 to 17, we see the Savior. We see the Savior. So the first thing we see here is the runner. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
So God calls to Jonah to go east. Jonah goes west. Here begins Jonah's rebellion against God. God clearly told him to go one way, and he ran the exact opposite direction. Right? And not just a little ways, he, he ran to Tarshish, which is about 1,500 miles away. Okay, I actually brought a map for you, a visual person. Okay? Tarshish was actually thought of in the ancient Near East to kind of be at the edge of the world. It would kind of like be saying, hey, go to Timbuktu, like just the furthest thing you can imagine. Right? Go to that place. This is, this is what you would imagine. And, and here, God is telling him to leave, to go uh, to Tarshish, that'd be kind of like saying to you today, God telling you to go to Boise, and then you getting on a boat and going to Maui, okay? That's kind of like how opposite direction this, this would have been, how dramatic this would have been. And if you go to Maui, we all get it, okay? And we understand why. doesn't mean you're rebelling, okay? But, but he goes down to this little marine town. He, pair, he pays a fare to get on the boat, right? Interesting to note, he's in Joppa, which Joppa is also the place that God gave a vision to Peter to go and tell Cornelius the gospel, which he was a Gentile. So if you think about it, Joppa is a really significant place in, in Scripture in terms of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. So Joppa has actually played a really important role in your life, if you think about it. You're a Gentile. But notice how quickly Jonah's life is changing. He's all of a sudden just in this craze of activity. There he was going about his ordinary business of ministry, just being a prophet. And then the next minute, he's gathering up his savings, and he's feverishly asking people in Joppa's Dockland where anyone might be sailing that night. Just think about how radically things are changing for him. I mean, we, we, we believe that Jonah was upstanding in really every other way, but in this story, he's kind of the bad guy, isn't he? We even see in 2 Kings, it tells us that Jonah was one of Israel's premier prophets. He had this really successful ministry. He prophesied about things that actually came true, right? He, he was one of the finest. He would be like a Charles Spurgeon or a J.I. Packer, right? He's like one of the upstanding ones, you know? But Jonah, the prophet, God's guy, what does he do? He runs. He runs, quote, away from the presence of the Lord. This is actually emphasized twice in just three verses that Jonah is running, but do you notice what Jonah is running from? He's not running from Nineveh. He's running from God. It says, literally, the phrase means Jonah runs from the face of God. That he, he, he's, if you can imagine, like staring at God's face and turns and runs away from God. Why would he run? Well, you would think that he's scared of Nineveh. And I just gave you some examples of how awful they are, so we wouldn't blame him, would we? Uh, I saw one uh, commentator note that um, the, uh, this, if, if Jonah were to go to Nineveh, the example of what he'd be doing, the magnitude of the situation would be the equivalent, if you will, of like a Jewish rabbi in 1941 standing on the streets of Berlin prophesying judgment against the Nazi Reich. Like it just wouldn't be a very safe place, would it, to be doing something like that? Chances are death would be very high. But is that why Jonah runs? We find out actually in chapter 4, verse 2, if you want to flip over like one page, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah tells you why he runs. He says, O Lord, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You guys, Jonah is not worried about what Nineveh will do to him. Jonah's worried about what God is going to do to Nineveh. And so he runs. He runs from God because he knows who God is. When, when Jonah runs away from the presence of God, we're being shown that not only does Nineveh need to be saved, but Jonah needs to be saved. He's a runner. He's rebelling. If you want to know what running is from God, it's, it's simply saying no to God. That's what it means to rebel. It's looking at God in the face and saying no. I think we often tend to evaluate our own relationship with God, and, and we evaluate it based upon how we compare ourselves to other people. So we might have these lists in our mind of, well, I, I go to church more often, or I do X amount of Bible studies, or I, I share the gospel with somebody. Whatever it is, I don't struggle with these sins like that person does, or whatever it is. But, but the lordship of God is one of those things that if it's not absolute, it's, it's not real. If it's not total, it's not real. I loved Matthew Barry's testimony from last week. We heard his powerful testimony, what God's done in his life. And one thing really stood out to me. He says, he goes, I believed I could pick and choose what parts of my life that I was going to share with God. And that really hit me because I'm like, yeah, I do that too. But that's running. It's picking and choosing. You see, you're never farther from God than when you're close to him and you say No. There, there are a lot of godly people who look like they're walking with God in every way, but there's some area that they're saying no to God. But the moment that you say no, you're a runner. Because when did Jonah start running? When the boat left the harbor? No. God said, arise, go to Nineveh. And then in verse 3, it says, Jonah arose. All right, we're tracking, okay, to flee. Uh-oh. His running began when he rose, are you a runner this morning? Why are you running? Every parent's nightmare happened to me this last Christmas. I had all, I had at least three of my kids. I don't remember if I had the fourth. Uh, shouldn't say that right now. But anyways, I had, I had all my kids with me, I think. And uh, we were shopping for Christmas presents. My wife wasn't there. And um, I'm leaving the Albany Walmart. Uh, with my kids, and I, I, I could see Eden here and Tucker and Gus, okay? And I'm on the phone with my wife about the presents, and I take my eyes off of my five-year-old. For I, I couldn't have been longer than five seconds as we're in this parking lot. And I, I turn and look, and he's gone. And I'm, like, just scampering about the parking lot, being like, where is this kid? You know, I go to the car, he's not there. I'm like, what is happening? And some other parent, I'm assuming, uh, sees the panic in my face and drives up to me. He's like, are you looking for a, a child? It's like, how do you know? You know, I am. And uh, she's like, oh, my daughter found him, took him inside. This all happened in a matter of seconds, okay? And I go in and I see Gus standing there at the, you know, customer service just with like tears streaming down his face, you know? This is like a whirlwind of mo just a few moments, okay? And, and I went over to him, and I, they finally let me have him back. You know, they were like, should we give him to you? And asking me all these questions and stuff. Um, serious story. Um, and uh, anyway, so I, I took him back, and, and he was home, and we were fine again. Well, let me ask you, what made Gus lost? What caused Gus to be lost? 
went to find it. Said he wasn't with me. Said he wasn't with me. His presence with me is what defines Gus being lost or being home. Being lost or being found. Whether he's running or staying. And Jonah's running. Jonah's running. But God's not done with Jonah. Verse 4, we see the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. See, the problem with running from God is that God is already where you're going. Jonah's running is an exercise in futility, actually. If you read like Psalm 139, the psalmist talks about this. He says, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to this place, you're there. If I go to that place, you're there. If I go even into hell, like you're there. Like he, he gives all these spectrums. He's like, who can flee from God's presence? Guys, we can't run from God. We can't. And even Jonah, he buries himself in a ship and God finds him there. He'll be in the belly of a fish. God will find him there too. He'll be complaining on a mountainside and God will be there. So here's the situation that we see in verses four through six. We see all these pagan sailors scared out of their minds. And what do they say? They say, everybody pray to their God. Hopefully one of them will pick up. They'll be in a good mood and we'll all be okay. Just start praying, right? Whoever your God is, just start praying. And even when they go down to Jonah, what do they call Jonah's God? They says, perhaps the God, little G. Like they're just like, yeah, you're God too, you know? Like just pray, maybe someone will pick up. And what's Jonah doing? Jonah's taking a nap. Jonah's sleeping. How ironic is this, right? They're, they're all up there having this theological discussion, and the prophet of God who's been given a message from God is downstairs, and he's asleep. And there's this really important play on words going on here, and it's in this, found in this word down. The word down is being repeated. You see in verse 3 and verse 5, Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down to the inner part of the ship. He goes down into sleep. And this sleep is not like a dozing sleep. This is like a coma sleep, like what God put Adam through when he took his rib out, you know, and gave it to Eve or whatever, okay? It's communicating to you something about the depth of Jonah's running. That's what it's telling you. You're getting a picture of the downward progression of what it looks like when we run from God. It starts with small disobedience and it ends in a total spiritual disaster. It's like when you're, when you're swimming at the ocean, if you're ever crazy enough to do that, Right, and all of a sudden, after moments go by, you realize I'm no longer with my group. You're like 14 hotels down the beach, aren't you? Yeah, and you're like, what just happened? How did I, how did I end up down here, right? That's what running looks like, the progression of it. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his classic, The Great Divorce, he talks about those who are running from God, and he describes them as being see-through people. He calls them see-through, meaning they have less and less substance the more they run from God. But those who run toward God, C.S. Lewis says, becomes, they become solid, they take on bright colors. Those running from God, he's telling you, are becoming less human, but we run towards God, we become more like what God intended us to be, more alive and more human, and we see just the downward progression here of Jonah's running, and so God brings a storm, brings a storm says in verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your job? What's your occupation? 
Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? They're just hammering him with these questions. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They knew it, that he was running from his God. Why? Because he told them. So Jonah knew it. Jonah knew exactly what was going on here. I think we noticed something very important here. Um, our disobedience affects other people. I mean, we, we never sin in private. I mean, for some of you, your family and your friends potentially are suffering right now because of your running. They're affected by it. We often believe this lie that what we're doing doesn't affect other people. Because of our Western thinking, that's what we believe. Oh, it's just my life. What I do doesn't affect others. Not at all. Uh, we should open our eyes and see how our running is affecting those around us. But inversely, the greatest gift that I can give to everyone who knows me, whether it's my wife or my kids or my coworkers or my neighbors or my friends or for you, the best thing I can give people is my intimacy with God, my non-running, my staying. Yes, I, I, I want to have that relationship for God's sake, for, for his glory, for, for my sake, for, because it's, it is me and God, just, you know, in a, in a large extent, but also for the sake of others, because it's not just me and God, it's others. The greatest gift you can give anybody is your own holiness. It's your own intimacy with God. I mean, you think of it like this, you know, when you're on a flight, if you've ever sat next to a child on a flight, they come by and they say, hey, in case of an emergency, the oxygen mask is going to fall down. But make sure you put yours on first before you help people next to you. And they probably tell you that because that's what people do. They just panic and start putting on masks for other people. But the idea is this, right? I have to be breathing to help my child breathe. It works the same spiritually. If you're passed out spiritually, you're going to kill those around you. Right, just, just catch the idea here. Jonah is hoping that his running affects Nineveh. That's what he's hoping his running affects in a bad way. But Jonah's running not only affects Jonah, it's affecting every single person that's near him. Then in verse 11, we see, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? But the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. We've got to say at this point, right, kudos to the mariners, right? They find out that Jonah is the cause of their near-death experience. And what is their response? They want him to live, Right? They don't want Jonah to die, kudos to them. But now they're in this rowing contest with God, which, how would you, can you imagine trying to do that? You're just rowing in a sea, your boat's breaking up, is what it says, and God's just got his finger on the stern, you know? He's just, yep, sorry, this ain't working. But, but like we've seen, this storm, it's affecting the mariners, but the storm wasn't primarily for the mariners, the storm was for Jonah, and Jonah knows it. Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There was nothing left for him now. He felt that God had no more use for him. He was no longer sure whether he was a servant of God or not. Remember when they asked him in verse 8 what his occupation was? 
That was the only question Jonah didn't answer. It was the only one he didn't answer. What's your occupation? Silence. Right? I, I wonder, I just wonder, if Jonah is no longer sure if he was even a prophet of God anymore, not even a prophet of God, a child of God. Jonah's giving up. That's what he's doing. He's surrendering. He, he's wiped the goobers out of his eyes from his deep sleep. He's waking up. He's done running. But in his giving up, he says, kill me, I'm done. Let's just do that. But God's not out to kill Jonah. God's out to save Jonah. I, I want you to see this morning what this storm wasn't meant for. Do you see, this storm wasn't given to punish Jonah. It was given to save Jonah. Do you see that the storm, potentially, in your life, isn't there, God hasn't brought it into your life in order to pay you back, but to bring you back. That the storm is not designed for retribution, but maybe restoration. Maybe it's the grace of God and not the judgment of God. I don't think many of us think of our storms that way, though. But there really are two ways you can always see something. Simple example. I mean, think of a thrift store, right? A thrift store is like a hoarder's paradise, but also a minimalist paradise, right? For very different reasons. Hoarders love thrift stores because you can cram more stuff into your house. Minimalists love thrift stores so I can get rid of all the stuff in my house, right? It's the same thing. You view it two different ways. We could see the storms of our lives as punishment or really what they probably are here as a means of salvation. This is how God often uses storms. He did it again even in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, we find another sleeper, don't we? When the disciples are on a boat and their boat is breaking up because of a storm, we find another sleeper, don't we? We find Jesus asleep. He's fast asleep in a boat. The disciples, like the sailors here, they're freaking out, aren't they? But Jesus isn't sleeping because he's running. Jesus is sleeping in the storm because he knows everything's going to be fine. And so Jesus gets up and he speaks and he calms the storm and Jesus reveals his power over the storm, which perfectly parallels with our verse 9 here where, this, where, they, where Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jesus as the Lord in Mark chapter 4, calms the storms with his word. Do you see? Jesus is to the storm, if you will. In Mark chapter 4, what God is to the wind and waves here in Jonah chapter 1. That Jesus himself, that God, has control over the storm. The storm is like a tool in God's hand. What's he using it for? He's using it to bring Jonah home. That's what he's using it for. We get to verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah surrenders, you guys. His life is hurled into the sea and the storm ceases. Jonah's life saves the mariners. And what do they do? They repent and they worship the one true God. They stop worshiping their gods. They didn't pick up when they called, but they start worshiping 
Yahweh, Jonah's God. God used the storm to bring them back to faith. It says that they fear the Lord. They fear Yahweh. They sacrifice to the Lord. They sacrifice to Yahweh. You see conversion here. These people are converted. In their own way, then, they've stopped running too. They've turned and they've run towards the presence of God. Jonah, whom they perceive in verse 14 as an innocent man, gives his life for theirs. Because you see this, Jonah is a type. He's the bad guy in the story for sure. He's the instigator. He's the reason why there's the rising action here. But he's also the savior. In his surrender, the storm ceases. But the, but the book of Jonah is just showing you who the real savior is. There's a, there's a huge contrast being set up now between how Jonah feels about the Ninevites and how God feels about the Ninevites. There's a huge contrast here. Jonah wants to see them destroyed. God wants to see them forgiven. Jonah's actually giving you a picture of the real Savior who would come for the Ninevites, the true Savior. And Matthew 12 says, Jesus says that he was a prophet just like Jonah. So Jesus said about himself. He said that his death on the cross, his resurrection from the tomb were a fulfillment of this sign given through Jonah, that Jonah, guys, was cast out into the sea and the sea became calm. And he was swallowed up by a fish and taken down into the depths of the ocean. But then three days later, he was brought back to the land of the living. That's what we're going to see. Then we read the Gospels and we see that Jesus was cast similarly into the ocean, but not just any ocean, not a physical ocean. Jesus was cast into the ocean of God's wrath towards our sin at the cross. And the great tempest of God against our sin became calm. Why? Not because Jesus wasn't innocent, because he was. See, Jonah, he says, I am the reason why this storm is here. But my storm that I go through in my life that God might use isn't there because of Jesus' disobedience. It's there because of mine. Jesus was then, after he was cast into that sea of God's wrath, he was placed in the heart of the earth for three days like Jonah, and then he was resurrected. The difference, of course, was that Jonah went through all this involuntarily because of his disobedience, and Jesus went all through it all because of our disobedience. Jesus did everything right that Jonah did wrong. He was the way better prophet. Jonah ran from his enemies. So we see him doing, but Jesus ran towards his enemies. Jonah was on a mission of revenge because he hated the Ninevites. Jesus came on mission of rescue because he loved them. Jonah was all about his own self-protection, but we see Jesus pour himself out in self-sacrifice. Guys, Jesus is the way better Jonah. He's the truly innocent savior. I mean, I hear people, you know, refer to the Bible or the God of the Bible, if you will, as um, judgmental. I often hear people say this, like, how could God dare punish people for their sin? But, but just think about that for a second. Just think about the moment in your life when you just taste like a hint of wrong against you. What do you cry out for? You cry out for vengeance, don't you? I'm going to get them back. Someone's got to pay. What we usually fail to understand is that all of our sin is to God what Nineveh's sin was to Jonah. Our sin is what crucified Jesus. It is infinitely more hideous to God than what the worst sin against us is to us. 
Nineveh's sin against God was great. Guys, it was gross. It was heavy. But my goodness, you guys, we should feel the grossness in the weight of our sin against God because it's equally great. I'm not, I'm not saying that to you because your sin isn't that bad and I'm just trying to some reason make you think it's worse than it is. It's just like I don't see how bad it is. I mean, it's probably a terrible example. I'm going to go with it anyways, okay? Um, my, my daughter, she's two, okay? Sometimes she goes number two in her diaper, like we all do, right? If you ever had a kid, what do they do? Like, what's that? They stick their hand in there. And whenever that's happened, Isla will come to me with her hand out like this, little number two on there. And you can look at her face and you know something's not right. But at the same time, she doesn't know how bad it is. Whereas I look at it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so gross. Like, why would you do that? You know, this is crazy. Like, do you not know that's poop? You know, like, you don't touch that. All these things. See, what I'm saying is, Isla, I'm not trying to get her to think that poop's worse than it is. I'm getting, I want her to see how bad it is. Like, yeah, don't touch it, right? I'm hoping one day she'll mature into that. I'm hoping. We'll see, okay? What I'm really trying to say, guys, is I'm, I'm Isla. I'm Isla. I don't think it's that bad. I'm Jonah. I'm a runner. But I'm also, I also see that I'm Nineveh. Let me tell you, when you see that, when you finally get to Nineveh, that'll change you. See, what God wants is for his people to have a heart like his, a heart that overflows with grace and compassion, that runs towards their enemies, not away from them. And what you're going to see here in Jonah is there's really three normal responses to when we hear God's word, when we, when we see his face. We just flat out run the other way, disobedience, right? We see that in Jonah, first chapter. We can then dutifully obey. Well, I should, you know? We see that in chapters three and four. That's where a lot of us are. There's a third way. There's like a gospel-transformed obedience where you act like God acts because you love like God loves because you've experienced the extravagant grace and love of God in such a way that you want to do these things now and it doesn't make sense to those around you. The only way you can develop that is through a deep experience of God's grace in your life. I'm telling you, this is like probably the thing that keeps me wanting to be a pastor is how many times I get to sit down with people and they're awesome people, but they've grown up and, and they haven't done that many bad things. They genuinely love God or whatever, but they're convinced and they don't even know it. They're convinced that God loves them because of the good things they do. They would never tell you that, but they're convinced of it. And it's my favorite thing when the lights come on and the eyes open up they're like, oh my gosh, I need God's grace and I have it. You know what happens? They change. That's why I love it. 
There's a humility that comes out. There's a gr gratitude that radiates. And then they become what? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I see it. Guys, the very thing that you think determines your standing before God, that'll be the very thing that you judge people with. If you think it's your performance that determines your standing before God, then you're gonna judge people by their performance. If you think it's grace that determines your standing before God, then you will judge others by that same grace. See, grace is a very offensive thing to the self-made man. You wanna know if you believe in the grace of God. You wanna know if you've really experienced the grace of God. You'll see it present in your relationships with other people. See, Jonah knew about the grace of God. It caused him to run, right? That's why he ran. He knew about it. But the grace of God hadn't shaped Jonah's heart. He didn't think he was as bad as Nineveh. God's grace, in his mind, had an expiration date, and it ended at his enemies. But that's not where God's grace ends. And that should cause you to go, praise God, because the gospel story is that while we were God's enemies, Jesus ran towards us, and he gave his life for us. He didn't just speak five words. The words he spoke were not mere words, it was the shedding of his blood. So I just wanna ask you, are you being shaped by the grace of God? Or is it just something that you can explain even really well with your words? Can you articulate it? Are you being shaped by it? I went to um, my 10-year-old's recorder concert you know the recorder, right? Everybody's favorite instrument. So thankful for the teacher that sent that home with us. You know, it was great. But uh, it, was, it was actually great. It was really wonderful. And um, the teacher had them perform a classic by Beethoven, okay, on the recorder. It's great. And the final movement in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is what they played. And if you're unfamiliar right now with the title, which many of you probably are familiar, but if you're not, it is the most famous and later had words written to it that became the hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, okay? Uh, Beethoven was already deaf when he wrote that. Like he, he was fully deaf when he wrote that, which became just a classic, and people just immediately um, just loved it. So even the day that it premiered on May 7th, 1824, when it was finally played, he couldn't even hear the applause of people from their experience of this beautiful piece of music that he had written. See, Beethoven was deaf, but he could write wonderful music. He knew how to do it. He knew how, he was a genius, but he wasn't able to enjoy it. Now, we would say that that's sad. That's really sad that he wasn't able to enjoy it. We wish that Beethoven could enjoy it because I'm sure he would want to enjoy it but it would have been actually far sadder if Beethoven could have enjoyed it, but just knew how to write it and didn't enjoy it. Wouldn't that be way more sad? If he knew how to do it, could just pump out masterpieces, but would never slow down and just enjoy it. That would be, that would be way, way more sad in my mind. To be able to enjoy the music, but not to do so. What I'm trying to say, guys, is I... I'm a lot like Beethoven, not in my music ability. 
We, we, we need to be people who not only know God's grace, Jonah could articulate it, I knew you were this way, but we enjoy God's grace in such a way that I know I'm Nineveh and I receive it because there was nothing special about Jonah. There was nothing special about Israel. The only thing that separated Jonah and Israel from Nineveh was the grace of God. It was it. Guys, be, be a person who enjoys the grace of God. In other words, stop running. I want to invite you this morning to stop running. You can't run from God. You maybe have been running, but he's actually been with you all along. He's a way better dad than I am to Gus in that moment. He's always known right where I am. So come home. You might feel like Jonah, you might feel like Nineveh, you might feel like the sailors, but all are invited home because God is a gracious God and Jonah knew it, but he didn't enjoy it. He wasn't shaped by it. But guys, God's not done with Jonah yet. And he's not done with you. Father, this morning, I do pray that you would help us to receive your word, to be changed by it, to not walk away with a couple facts, but to walk away with a renewed mind, a renewed heart, a different outlook, a different strength and power. God, I, I recognize this morning that I can't make anybody deeply experience and feel your grace. I can't do that in my own life, and so I call out to you, God, just to do a miracle in our hearts this morning. Align our hearts with you. In Jesus' name, amen.